Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 1st, 2021. We made it through the first two months of 2021. It's so exciting. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. So, uh, guys, um, the, the, the COVID, the long-term COVID news... Uh, continues to get better, uh, even as the you know uh, the day to day news is still tragic. So we have uh, we have the we have the uh, official approval. Uh, I think it'll come today because the CDC director has to sign off on it. But the official approval of the third uh, vaccine, Johnson and Johnson, which of course is uh, a godsend because it's a single dose. Uh, it can be stored at room temperature which means that basically uh, anyone can get it anywhere. Uh, they can send people into the homes of the home, you know, into the homebound to get shots. And uh, uh, and uh, later on, uh, assuming that, as I think we can assume, uh, it will be okay for uh, teenagers and kids to get it. This is, this is the way that uh, all of the controversies involving the question of transmission uh, in schools, at camps, in athletic programs and everything like that will be answered and addressed, assuming that Johnson & Johnson can produce sufficient amounts of the vaccine, which apparently is a bit of a question. They're they're behind uh, on their their, uh, manufacture. even more important, I think, are the uh, bits of, uh, of evidence that are coming uh, out of Israel and studies and, and everything else that suggests that not only do these three vaccines uh, uh, lessen the effect of COVID if you should, if you should uh, get it and get the vaccine in the middle of it, uh, but also prevent it from you know, entering your body or if you get sick, you only get a very little bit sick. And apparently inhibit transmission, which is the which is the goal. That's what we need. That's what we want most. Um, is to make sure that the vaccine uh, inhibits transmission, which means that its effect is not simply to uh, protect you from the vaccine, but to protect everybody else from you. So we no longer will need uh, to be protected from you once you are vaccinated and uh that that really gives us a window to the end of the of the pandemic or at least the end of the uh social horrors uh that have been brought upon us by the pandemic uh can anybody see any bad news or anything uh that isn't positive it's i wouldn't exactly say it's bad news um in the proper perspective but the dramatic decline in daily cases has stalled out a little bit um, over the past week. Um, what's frustrating to me about that is that it took um, really the, the the mainstream press, it took them about two to three weeks to actually um, acknowledge the dramatic decline. And it took them about an hour to report on how it stalled. Right. Um, and of course, the stalling comes just as, uh, for example, here in New York, uh, we are on the verge of a kind of a much more significant semi-reopening. Um, not that significant, because again, the, uh, the, uh, the rules and principles by which the reopening uh, is happening, for example, at movie theaters remain um, 
astonishingly just sort of like random, you know, 25% uh, capacity, only 50 people uh, maximum in a movie theater, uh, 25% capacity. Why not 27%? Why not 32%? Like, again, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to this number. Um, It was, you know, pulled out of the air to be draconian, to look like, you know, we're not just letting you loose and everybody can just sit anywhere they want just like the restaurant numbers. Um, but if we, if this then uh, causes a, a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, the, what would you call it? Seduction, the seductive lure of re-lockdowns, particularly for certain governors who might be in a certain amount of trouble, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, that would obviously be all to the bad. Well, that's where you got to be concerned because New York and New Jersey are where cases are on the rise. Um, scientists are uh, discovering these um, British and South African variants, particularly in New York City, where progress is generally stalled to avoid cases. But what's not changing is decline in hospitalization rates and deaths. That hasn't stalled out at all. And that's what's really valuable. I mean, if you just we're approaching, we had we kind of stalled out in vaccinations for like two weeks because of these storms across the country, but pretty much recovered over the course of the last weekend. We're doing Upwards of 2 million, 2.2, 2.4 over the weekend. Uh, Mil- that's, mil- that million vaccine, million, million, dose. vac- million doses. Yeah. yeah. So if you maintain that rate over the course of 30 days, that's 75 million shots. Now, one dose, two dose, who knows? doesn't matter because that's, that even a single dose, according to this preliminary research, suggests that it dramatically reduces the likelihood that you'll have a severe enough case to be hospitalized. And that is all that matters. Right. Well, the other thing about the, the, the first dose versus the second dose, the second dose is a booster shot. Uh, it is not like, uh, you know, like uh, the second piece of the puzzle, like the puzzle isn't completed until you get the second shot. It is a booster dose intended to lengthen and deepen the effect of the vaccine on your body. If you never get the second dose, for example, you know, it's not, you're still, uh, you're, you're still at 90% of what you would get if you got the second dose and maybe, a, you know, have a little longer time. And that's on top of the 75.2 million that have been administered already. So we'll be approaching half the population. I mean, how many adults are there in the country? It's right. It's like 260 million, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There are 75 million. Okay. Under the age of 16, I think there are 65 million, uh, people, um, and uh, anyone over 16 can get the vaccines. So uh, I think, is it 16 or 18? Anyway, if it's under 18, there are 75 million people under 18. Um, the, look, the significant thing is also in terms of hospitalizations and, and, and all of that is that uh, if you combine the treatments that have been approved that uh, now appear to be uh, successful, remdesivir, uh, and of course, the uh, the derided, the psychotically derided uh, hydroxychloroquine, which was derided by uh, by partisan lunatics who just didn't like the idea that Trump uh, last year was retailing the notion that there was a treatment for COVID. When I knew doctors who had prescribed themselves hydroxychloroquine and uh, recovered from the symptoms of COVID they were experiencing in six or seven hours. I mean, I had three different anecdotal pieces of evidence from from doctors who did this to themselves because it is, as we as we all know, it's an anti-malarial, so it is an easily prescribed drug and easily obtained and one of the most commonly taken and one of the least toxic. And so, why 
why people had that cow just reminds us of the dementia that we had end landed in when uh, if Trump said X, everybody else said no, everything that comes out of his mouth is, you know, evil and insane. Uh, but now they're using hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir and there's some other one and the vaccine if you come in, you get it early enough, it, the vaccine itself will function as a as a treatment. You know, this is a total digression, but, you know, we talk about all the ways life will change and how horrible it will be after the pandemic. But the research that went into this vaccine, the crash program and the new technologies that were developed earlier on but applied to this are being applied elsewhere. And malaria is one of them. The U.S. Patent Office received its very first trademark for an mRNA vaccine against malaria last week, building on this research. Talk about an advancement in the human condition that we never experienced before. Globally, this thing is is an absolute killer. And to the prospect of neutralizing, maybe even eliminating malaria... I mean, that's that's a human advancement on a scale of polio, smallpox. Right, bigger. Yeah. Bigger. I mean, malaria is, a, malaria is, I think, the deadliest disease, extant disease on Earth. Uh, I, I, may be, I, I may be misremembering this, but, you know, that is the whole point that the mosquito uh, is, in fact, an unbelievably deadly uh, you know, sort of Amer- uh, Yeah, we wanted to eradicate the species from the face of the planet and have yeah. been doing, making strides towards that. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. a, kind of a, a difficult thing to do. So if you right. can eliminate the, the protein that makes you sick, I mean, all the better. Right. But listen, you know, even our own, uh, even our own uh, conservative Dr. Doom, Scott Gottlieb, has a piece today in the Wall Street Journal saying that we are, you know, that we, we, the, the the vaccine the pieces of evidence we have about how the vaccine functions and works is better than we could have hoped you know it is it is just vastly better than we could have hoped and i i don't think that we would have uh, expected you know i think the news last year was so bad uh that even though we had hoped that there was going to be a vaccine the notion that it would be this good uh, I, you know, who knows who, I mean, I but guess more to the point to Gottlieb's point is that the vulnerable population will be immunized against this and we need to behave accordingly. Right. So this, the- yeah, this is the moment where, where it no longer becomes tenable for the politicians and the public health officials behaving like politicians to impose arbitrary restrictions any longer when it comes to things like schools and restaurants and outdoor events and these sorts of things. They will continue to do so. But now there is, I mean, we've, we've talked about this for, for months now, and there's been plenty of scientific evidence about a lot of this stuff for months. But with this vaccination uh, outcome, which is such a positive thing, there it's now completely politics that's playing out in a lot of these areas. Well, yeah. Well, so what does the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, say? Now is not the time to relax restrictions. Well, why does she say that? And I'm going to go to this again because everybody knows it's true. The question is, will she say that when the Senate, after the Senate passes the COVID relief package and it goes to the house and they do reconciliation and it goes to Biden's desk and Biden signs it the day after that bill becomes law. And this $2 trillion package of democratic twenties will begin <laughs> yeah, democratic pork 
is signed into law. The idea that Biden, uh, it'll be interesting to see, will, I mean, if they don't treat it like it's happy days are here again, which they really shouldn't because of the tone that they've been taking, but it will be happy days are here again for everybody who voted for them and everybody, you know, every constituent group that they're, that they're trying to serve. So, uh, you know, a week later, I kind of doubt that that's going to be her tone. She has made it very clear that she falls into line when they tell her to fall into line. She says open schools. They say don't open schools. She says don't open schools. <laughs> asthma is a problem. We better do something about that asthma. And then, you know, it occurred to me, and then I got to do a spot, but it occurred to me that the really interesting thing about the Biden slogan, which nobody could make sense out of in 2020, right? Built back better. Like, what is that? What does that mean? It's weird. Obviously, they must have focus grouped it, market tested and everything. But if you actually try to analyze the meaning of the phrase build back better, it means we're not just going to be, we don't want to just go back to being where we were before the pandemic. Everything Every public works project that we are going to undergo and entertain is there to be better. It should be better than we were. Everything should be built with the COVID relief package to make it better than it was. They focus grouped Biden 2020, never let a crisis go to waste, and it, it just didn't sell. Right, right. But I'm just saying build back better means, you know, you don't just reopen. You reopen with new regulations that are just great. You know, I mean, that's that's basically where we are. I just want to, uh, I'm going to be talking to you about this all month the, in the lead up to Passover. You guys, the new book by Mark Gerson, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. Mark, uh, uh, a businessman, an intellectual uh, consultant, uh, former school teacher, uh, author of several books, uh, Rabbi's Husband, uh, and the host of the Rabbi's Husband podcast, has produced a book that is a an examination of the uh, Haggadah, the the uh, compendium that all Jews uh, for you know close to a thousand years have have read and studied uh, on the two nights of Passover, uh, and. Uh, it is the best, probably the best known Jewish text to Jews, and the uh, commandment of the Chabad, of the Haggadah is that you are to tell the story, and the more you tell it, and the more you analyze it, the better and more praiseworthy you are. And so, uh, Mark has gone into uh, great detail, uh, great stories, great analysis of the fifteen sections of the. Uh, of, of the Seder, the Passover Seder, what they mean, where the symbolism comes from, why we eat an egg, why we use, why we dip parsley, why we wh- why we substitute certain types of foods for certain types of sacrifices, uh, and the like. It's a it's a it's an intellectual journey. Uh, it will be fantastic for everybody who uh, will be celebrating Passover this year and in future years to find. Uh, interesting and relevant uh, material and anecdotes to share at the Seder to make it more um, interesting and more engaging, uh, both for young people and for people at the table who who may not know uh, as much as 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 they would would wish to. So that's the telling by Mark Gerson. 
buy it at Amazon, buy it at, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble, buy it wherever you buy books. Uh, you will thank me for it. The telling by Mark Gerson. Okay. So uh, one governor who certainly profited from uh, being uh, as authoritarian as it was, was humanly possible was um, uh, Andrew Cuomo of New York. And Andrew Cuomo is in a whole mess of trouble now. Uh, the the uh, dam is breaking as a result of the attorney general report uh, in New York State uh, that uh, officially proved what we had all known but hadn't had chapter and verse on, which is that his order to send COVID patients back to nursing homes um, had a was a was a was a, a, a catastrophic. Uh, mistake, and that uh, in response to it, that he and his government had deliberately uh, misrepresented and undercounted uh, the number of deaths resulting from that uh, in an effort to uh, maintain his glowing uh, reputation, his Emmy, his posters, his uh, Hope and Crosby routine with his uh, brother on CNN and, and and the like. And because of that, because he now seems uh, to be wounded a little bit, uh, as is often the case, a very frightening figure some, somehow becomes less frightening, and then people start coming out and telling you things that they hadn't told you before. Uh, one of them we, we went through last week, that was uh, Lindsay Boylan's revelation uh, or claim that, uh, that uh, Cuomo had literally molested her in his office, kissed her on the lips um, after a much flirtation, having summoned her to the office, basically, apparently, for that express purpose. And now a second, a young aide uh, in her early 20s, um, Charlotte Bennett, who says that he basically made uh, verbal advances uh, on her uh, in, a, in a manner that in any public sec- private sector institution would immediately have the person who had done that fired. Uh, he's lonely. Does she does she date older guys? He's sixty three. She's twenty five. I mean, she must. Like, he likes younger women. Maybe she likes older guys. Where does she have her tattoos? Maybe she should uh, put her tattoo on her butt so that uh, people don't see it. Not, not that professional. And can I and can I just yeah. say he calls this playful banter? Oh, I'm just and so mentorship. playful and mentorship, yeah. right? I'm quite sure he's not asking whether you know his male staffers have tramp stamps. I mean, come on, this is just like it's so appalling. And it's also I just have to add the the uh, one of the other things he did was discuss with a reporter the fact that she disclosed that she was a victim of sexual assault, like she was a she was a sexual assault survivor. So that's another thing where like, did she give permission for that, for him to share that information? I mean, it's just the whole thing is, is certainly a political disaster for him, but what a, what a horrific and, and, you know, absolutely uh, incompetent way to just to even defend yourself, which is he's throwing her reputation under the bus in a very passive aggressive way, which of course is his, political strategy but it's just it's appalling it's appalling <laughs> okay i i have been following and i've known andrew cuomo you know sort of very slightly for almost 30 years and i've been following his career very carefully throughout that time and the last adjective that anybody who has ever watched him and i believe anybody who has ever known him would use to describe andrew cuomo is playful chris cuomo whom I know, is quite playful. Andrew Cuomo is a deadly, serious, humorless, intense, focused, um, you know, like uh, Scud Missile. 
I mean, uh, he is he is nothing but um, aggression and purpose. That is what he is. And the notion that after a day's worth of spinning, after the Charlotte Bennett revelation came out in the New York Times uh, Saturday afternoon, after a day's worth of spinning, he finally came up with an apology, saying, "You know, he he, I, you know, he didn't mean to make anybody feel uncomfortable. He was just being playful and he was mentoring and all of that." Which is not a fi- that's an official politician's apology, which isn't to apologize for their behavior, but to say, "I'm sorry if you didn't like my behavior." It's not an apology. Right. I just have to right. say that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. The dam has broken in public opinion too, or at least in elite media venues <clears throat> like CNN is now covering this pretty aggressively. People like John Oliver are doing late night, you know, hits saying what a colossal jerk he is, and they always knew it. And if you follow the day to day news, you know, it seems like it took a while from the end of the Trump administration to the beginning of the Obama administration to get to this point. But in with proper perspective, um, this will this will appear like a blink of the eye, like a real pivot on a dime from the preferred narrative of the moment to oh now the truth can be told twentieth party Congress sort of stuff. Um, Abe, so uh, can I tell you what I'm just think? Yeah. Um, so you know, Cuomo gets out there with this um, non-apology apology, and um, I think he could save himself in some sense if 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 things stop here what we know about these cases um is that when there's two there's usually three there's four you know there's five you know when two come out when the essentially over the course of a couple weeks um in a career that's as, as long as his um if there's any sort of cascade here he is done well, I mean, I don't even know what it means to say that he's done. The fact is that he could be done this year by nothing having to do with the, these um, sexual harassment revelations. The question is, uh, in the in the intentional misleading uh, of um, the public on these uh, health statistics, uh, that story is far from over. Because what we don't know, because Cuomo himself has already set it up, that this dead is dead, right? Okay, so these people uh, died in the hospital instead of in a nursing home, and they were the deaths weren't attributed to the nursing home, and maybe they should have been, but it's horrible. But dead is dead. Like they didn't not they didn't hide that people died. Well, we don't know what that means because we know that dead may be dead. We don't know whether in the period between they came for the period when they came back from the hospital into the nursing home, whether other people died as a result of the fact that they were sent back to the nursing home. That, I don't know what you call that, contact tracing data and information is something that will be very hard to gather because the nursing homes themselves, of course, have literally no incentive to have followed or collected any such data for their own liability reasons. The health department of New York state didn't want to collect it or follow it because it was trying to deal with and hide the consequences of the decision. So a lot of forensic detective work is going to have to go into this matter. But I will say for the sake of, you know, discussion that if it were discovered that a single person died as a result of the decision to move someone back to the nursing home. And that fact was covered up knowingly. If after all this uh, uh, detective work proves that, 
then he could go to jail. I, I, it's not just, I don't mean for Murr, I mean for, for, uh, uh, lying on forms. He signed, I'm sure he signed certain types of documents, uh, with, uh, the CDC and others in terms of what it was that they were supposed to, what it was that he, data that he was supposed to provide in order for cer- certain types of help. And he could really go to jail for that. Um, I doubt somehow that he will be forced out of office for sexually harassing people. What it will mean is that he will be an impaired figure. Uh, He will be on the run. He will be on the defensive. His method of governance, which is intimidation and fear, will be halved in effect. Uh, But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he will have to go down. I mean, Jen Psaki said Biden wants there to be an investigation. Uh, it's hard to read these stories. And I don't know, what if Kristen Gillibrand and Chuck Schumer both say he has to go? The two senior Democrats who are not in Albany. I, you know... I'm not sure. How, how can they... Yeah, I mean, Al Franken had to resign. Well, Al... Fr- okay, but Al Franken... So Gillibrand said Al Franken had to go. But of course... He's a senator. She's a senator. That had to do with the, you know, the politics working order of the Senate. I know. I know it has to do with politics. But there's there's a cover for her uh, in that regard. I think. But I, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. Christine, uh, you wrote about Me Too a lot for us. Wrote, you know, I don't know. You've written five or six pieces over the course of the last three years uh, about about Me Too. Let let's ventilate on this a little bit. Well, we saw, you know, at the beginning of Me Too, there were lots of uh, prominent Democratic male scalps that were taken, which was a good thing. Um, you know, Democratic donors like Harvey Weinstein being the most notable, but also Eric Schneiderman and, you know, other kind of prominently uh, feminist men on the left who who were proven. Uh, we, we should say, by the way, that Eric Schneiderman was the attorney general of right. the state of New York. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so they. So we saw that at the beginning, but I think there was a. There was a. Unfortunately, if you're cynical, like I am about this stuff, there was a predictable but obvious shift that started to occur. Occur as as the movement wore on, um, which included uh, when men were accused, men like Joe Biden, for example, or even Donald Trump. There were deflections made, excuses made, investigations not brought up, um, and you know it all. Uh, this was true also of uh, um, the uh, Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. Anytime a prominent uh, politician, usually a Democrat, but including, you know, some Republicans was accused, it all just kind of went away. Now, on the left, that was because the media refused to engage the argument, discuss it and apply the standards that they'd applied earlier. Um, and we, we definitely saw that with the Biden and the Tara Reid allegations. Only one or two reporters even attempted to look deeply into that, into those accusations. Um, and we're going to see that again, in, I think, in some sense with Cuomo, right? They're, they, they're done taking down major figures in a way because there's a sort of – it requires the media really digging deep and doing this, right? Because unless there are charges brought – how do you find out if the accusations are true or not? Well, you need the media to really thoroughly investigate them, which is what they did to, to very good effect when it came to, you know, Bill Cosby, when it came to Weinstein. I don't think we're going to see that level of scrutiny with Cuomo. I just don't. I, I Perhaps I'm cynical about this. I don't think we're going to see that unless someone files a charge against him. And then that that sets in motion a whole legal case, which does then uncover evidence. Well, look, the, the Al Franken case, which is uh, which is where uh, New York Senator Gillibrand is implicated because she was the person who said right. Al Franken has to resign. That happened in a very specific political context, which was the Senate race in Alabama. 
And the idea was that the Democrats assumed that Roy Moore, who had been credibly accused of ephebophilia, pursuing teenage girls when he was in his 30s, um, uh, that he was going to win the the Senate race and that uh, they were going and that the Democrats were going to hang Roy Moore around the neck of the Republicans and strangle the Republicans until they were dead with the fact that this elected official who had done this uh, was elected and was sitting there as one of a hundred senators. And the, and the story that came out about Al Franken uh, fooling around in the vicinity of the breast of a traveling reporter or uh, entertainer uh, on a USO tour in Iraq in 2003 with photos and all that uh, was going to interfere and and make that harder for Democrats, right? So uh, Al Franken had to go to clear the decks for the Roy Moore assault, and then Roy Moore lost, and Franken had resigned, and suddenly it was like, oh my God, what did we... What did we do? We took Al Franken down for nothing. But then, but there was also another political thing going on, which again didn't get a lot of attention. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it maybe was half of a news cycle. But Gillibrand had a, Gillibrand had a sexual harassment issue within her own Senate office, and she did not apply the rules that she wants to apply to everyone else when it came to dealing with that harasser. There was, you know, she she basically outed the victim. She claimed, "Oh, we love the we love the victim, but we're we're going to do our own internal investigation." The victim was not satisfied with how Gillibrand handled things, and uh, Gillibrand basically shut down that conversation. Certainly with the media, it was like, "We dealt with it, no problem. Let's move on." So I. She She's herself quite a hypocrite when it comes to picking and choosing, you know, to whom she's going to apply these aggressive Me Too standards. When she's talking about anyone else, she wants the most aggressive standards and, you know, pushing the limits of, of uh, uh, the presumption of innocence and, and due process. But when it comes to her own office, forget it. Like, then the rules don't apply. Well, I mean, that's what you say, but I, she could also say that she's in the witness protection program. Right. <laughs> I mean, we live right. in New York. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a political commentator in New York. I have not seen a press release. I have not seen a statement. I have not seen a public event. I have not seen a press conference with Kristen Gillibrand since she dropped out of the presidential race, which was, I guess, at the end of 2019 when she just failed to uh, catch uh, you know, fire in, in any way, shape or form going, uh, playing Miss Wokety Woke, having gotten elected to the House as a pro-life, pro-gun Democrat in 2006. That was how she got elected to the House. And then by 2019, she is like, you know, uh, everybody should get an abortion and nobody should have a gun and woke and this and that and the other thing. And the future, and she, the future is, no. the future is intersectional and female. Intersectional right, and female. Oh, that's right. Let's yes. see, this is, this is what's frustrating about these. So when, when post me too moment, which we're in now, and we did mention recently some of the reasons why the me too movement kind of petered out. There was never a, a it, there was this cultural moment where people were willing to discuss how do you handle these extremely complicated things when they arise. When an accuser comes forward, it's true that in the past, we have not given the benefit of the doubt to many accusers. They have felt like they, they're fearful of coming forward. But there also has to be a process for, for seeing whether their allegations are true or false, which we, for example, did not see in the case of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's accuser, for example. So there there has been a moment that we've lost in deal. how, how as a culture, 
setting aside the legal issues, how as a culture do we do we deal with these sorts of allegations? Because it's important for women to feel like they can come forward, but how they are treated when they do come forward is also important. And what we see, if this once again becomes just, you know, the Bill Clinton feminist, uh, you know, circling the wagons that it was in the 90s, will have not moved the bar at all when it comes to harassment and assault in the workplace. Well, in particular. Qu- quite, quite the opposite. I mean, if you actually think about it, in 1998... When the Democratic Party decided to circle the wa- the Democratic Party and sort of liberal culture decided to circle the wagons around uh, Bill Clinton uh, uh, in 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 the course of a textbook case of the uh, misuse of uh, power, uh, a man in his fifties, a woman in her twen- a woman in her very early twenties, even if she were willing. Uh, the whole doctrine of sexual harassment saying that there there can be no um, equality in such a relationship because the power dynamic is so skewed, particularly if you're talking about the president of the United States and an intern, right? And so this was something that we all learned from them, and then they just dropped it because they were so terrified of the what it would mean for them to accept the Republican charges that Clinton had done something wrong. And then sexual harassment went away for almost 20 years. That's what's interesting. Not only did it go away, five years later at the Academy Awards, Roman Polanski, a man who had raped a 12-year-old girl, had raped a 12-year-old girl and had fled the United States because his the deal that he had worked out with the prosecutors was rejected by the judge in the case who was so horrified by what had happened, got a standing ovation when he won the Oscar for directing The Pianist. Uh, Woody Allen, whom I think is unfa- unfairly and unjustly accused of having molested his seven-year-old daughter, but Woody Allen won two Oscars over the course of the of the next 15 years. And Harvey Weinstein uh, produced many Oscar-winning right. films, even exactly. though it was an open secret that he was uh Exactly. So I'm just, I'm just saying that, that sexual harassment went away when it wasn't about Clarence Thomas and Robert Packwood, when, it, when suddenly it ensnares the President of the United States, who has to be defended, the issue is retired. And then when it comes back, because there is a Republican president of the United States who is a sexual harasser, then guess what? The problem is that you, if you know, the the fish that are sitting out there that haven't been touched are Harvey, you know, it's Harvey Weinstein, or or what, or Al, or and then you can start, you know, Al Franken starts going after Trump or Roy Moore. Well, you know. There's this woman got a photo. There's this photograph that he took in 2003. You know, if if this had become part and parcel of ordinary corporate and American life, that this standard was applied that said, you know, you can't do this, then um, then you wouldn't have had these explosions of these cases because chances are people wouldn't have behaved this way, including Harvey Weinstein, who would have been too afraid, or Andrew Cuomo. Or whoever. Now, uh, let me take a minute to talk to you today about our friends at the Bonson Group. Uh, we are on the verge of this $2 trillion um, 
pork relief package, uh, which is, you know, the largest piece of uh, spending ever in American history. And uh, it comes at a time when the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, has basically said, spend away. We are going to be loose with money. We need to make sure that the economy doesn't uh, drag because of the pandemic. And I am not afraid of inflation. Is that right? Is he right? Is he applying the right macroeconomic analysis? Does it matter whether he's right or wrong, given the powers that he has as the Fed chairman? If you want to understand how public policy intersects with your own finances and your own investment strategy and uh, look to financial advice and a financial advisor who can help you through these thickets in a way that most financial advisors do not have the experience, the knowledge base, or the analytical power to do, you want to look to the Bonson Group. If you have money to invest and you want to give it to David Bonson and his bi-coastal management firm with over $2 billion to $2.5 billion in assets under management, uh, one way to sample his wares is to is to take a look at his two internet products, the dctoday.com, a daily newsletter uh, about how the markets did that day and what's going on in public policy and the weekly dividendcafe.com. Uh, these are uh, really, they, these are, these are documents, products, newsletters, whatever you want to call them that I uh, find uh, absolutely um, necessary to my efforts to understand these matters and you should too. So please take a look at that. Uh, take a look at the analysis Consider the Bonson Group for your financial management needs. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N, David Bonson and the Bonson Group, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, CPAC. Abe, you watched Trump's speech yesterday at CPAC. I did. So did I. Go ahead. Well, um, I have to say I thought, you know, when he sort of first came out, um, he, there was, I, I did get that, I, I sort of remembered why he, when he first showed up on stage and took, took a long um, kind of like standing O period and sort of, you know, waved to the, to the fans and gripped the flag and did whatever he did. I sort of remembered why his appearance initially was um, kind of refreshing um, in a way, even though now obviously we couldn't be more sick of it. Um, but, but I was, I was, you know, reminded of how different he was. Um, and then uh, after about five minutes, I got extremely bored. Um, what what struck me most, uh, I guess, is that um, the, the I, he's just sticking with, as of course he is, the idea that the election was stolen. Um, this is not, d- d- despite the, the 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 riot on the the Capitol Hill, this, despite the the second impeachment, um, the despite his his sort of momentary um, sort of um, cue card contriteness contrition uh, after the, after, after the, uh, after the riot. Um, this is still the, the message going forward. This is everything to him and his supporters is, is, is the idea that this, that this election was stolen. He said he's going to, he may, he said he may run and, and beat the Democrats a third time. 
There was there was something really kind of Old Testament like about a couple things with CPAC. One was that part of his speech. Abe, I agree. It was basically you know he did the kind of canned attack the Biden stuff that obviously his advisors wanted him to do at the beginning, which is why it was boring because he wasn't really all that invested in that. Which is actually the more important message if you're a Republican. But it was the vengeance is mine, saith the Trump. Right? It was you know here's the laundry list of people who who weren't with me, who are against me, my enemies list. Just like there was a there was a weird you know, bail like moment where a lot of a lot of people saw this image of the golden statue of Trump that was wheeled into CPAC and people were taking their photos with. So the weird kind of that was where I got the Old Testament vibes. But I, you know, the, on the policy issues, he was pretty dull on the I've been wronged and I want to seek vengeance. That's what rallied the crowd. I don't know that that I mean, the CPAC crowd is not necessarily indicative of the Republican Party. And I think the mainstream media loves to make it out as such. But it could be the case, given the statistics, the, the, the sort of poll numbers we've seen, that it's becoming more like the Republican Party, in which case we should be a little concerned. <laughs> I, so I didn't watch the speech. I didn't have a chance to, but I've read accounts of it. And from the accounts that I've read, you know, what really generated the applause lines were when he deviated, I guess, from the script and went after the Republican Party, said, get rid of them all. Was that your impression? And if so, I mean, civil war back on, at no, least there cold were- civil war. There were moments when the crowd uh, lit up. Um, it was a very long speech. It was, I don't know, an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. Uh, the crowd was quite listless for, for, for much of it. And what was interesting was that it was listless about issues that I think he thought or that his people, Stephen Miller, Jason Miller, you know, Henry Miller, uh, Daisy Miller, I don't know, you know, everybody named Miller apparently wrote this speech um, that uh, that they thought would, you know, like be catnip to the crowd or, you know, just like drive the crowd crazy. All this talk, all this stuff about immigration and it fell bizarrely flat, like nobody was, I mean, I wasn't in the room, I was only listening on, on, on C-SPAN or watching on C-SPAN, but nobody cares this was the issue that that drove him to the nomination, uh, arguably. Uh, you know, if you really want to sort of think about what it was that he talked about that galvanized people like nothing else in 2015, it was immigration where everybody else was sort of tiptoeing around and trying to figure out how to split the difference and all of that. And that wasn't him. He was their murderers. They're, they're killing people in San Francisco. And, they're, eh, you know, they're coming across the border and they're monsters and all of that. And he kind of went back to it and went and was going after Biden and Biden's policies on this. And nobody cared. But, you know, it, what they cared about was when he said the Supreme Court was were cowards. And, yeah, they want to go. And so when he went to the election was stolen stuff, that they liked. When he went to what Trumpism is and what we did and how what we did, we did things that no one's ever done before. We had the greatest economy in the history of everything and everything was great. And we did this and we made the vaccines and we did that. And they didn't, they, that, that nothing, the buttons weren't pushed. His heart wasn't in it in a weird way. That's what's interesting. The sort of self-defense and self-praise wasn't really even doing it for him. I was struck by how relieved he seemed from much of the speech. He seemed like it was like, oh God, thank God I have this off my back already. I'm not president anymore. I can just kind of like uh, talk much more um, uh, calmly 
and and like I'm not, you know, my my buttons aren't being pushed every five seconds. I'm not overstimulated the way I was or something like that. He seemed peculiarly at at peace or at at rest, particularly for somebody who now says the election was stolen from him and all of that. Like it didn't seem like he was consumed with injustice. So I, I was struck by how the policy stuff was of no interest. And that, yeah, go ahead. I just, but that makes perfect sense because to me, because um, once you think that uh, the American political system has not honored your vote, if you, there are millions of people who genuinely believe that, then that is the foremost problem that you have with, with the running of the country, right? Everything else has to take backseat to that. But that's not where that's not that's not where he thought this. The structure of the speech suggests that that is not where he thought he was going right. or what they wanted to do. So that that's an interesting thing because if attacking Biden isn't what jazzes the Republicans. But simply this uh, mechanical way, but, but how the Democrats stole it from us, not even what the Democrats are doing or going to do or going to be in office. But, you know, you know, they stole my candy bar and someone's got to do something. I mean, I guess that can that 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 can be a kind of anger that never goes away, but it's not a rallying cry. And um and it kind of gives Biden a, a bit of a bit of room to run. The other really striking thing about CPAC was when they did the the straw poll about who should be the nominee in 2024, Trump won with 55 percent. 55 percent. Now, if I had said to you it was 55 percent, given what we've heard and what we heard about how this is his party and all that, Shouldn't he have gotten eighty five percent? I mean, I'm I, I'm not saying that this means that you know the Republicans are over Trump, but twenty three percent of them said DeSantis. Twenty three percent said DeSantis. I bet I enjoyed Ted Cruz coming in at one percent, <laughs> as did Mitt Romney. As as did Those Mike as did Mike Pence. Right, all so, of them took very different um, courses to get there. the The Trump movement ne- was never motivated by policy. Let's get that straight. From twenty fifteen on, when they we're banging the immigration drum. It wasn't in opposition to Barack Obama's policies. It was in opposition to the Gang of Eight. It was in opposition to Republicans who had pursued an immigration plan in 2013. That's what energized Donald Trump's movement. That's what energized his supporters, a culture war, an internecine culture war, and a dominant culture within the Republican Party. That's always what they've been really energized by, not fighting Democrats on policy terms but by punishing what they thought is an ethos that looked down on them from within their own coalition. Well, and that's why his call, the one thing he did do, which surprised me was his appeal, direct appeal for money. He said, here's where you go to give us money, give us money. We're going to endorse our own candidates. Like, so, so sort of setting himself up in opposition to what is typically the role of the RNC and the other fundraising arm of the Republican Party. Now there's a Trump arm of the fundraising arm of the Republican Party. I'll be really curious to see how they do fundraising wise. Now, this is I, I, whatever disclosures he has to make will come later. But if he's able to raise money off of his cult of personality, that is going to be money that I'm not sure it's money that would otherwise have gone to the RNC, for example, but it's money that's taken away from, you know, sort of mainstream party candidates and, and directed towards the Trump empire. So um, let me step back once again and talk to you about our friends at ExpressVPN who are very interested in helping you 
make sure that your data and your information and your likes and dislikes are not the province of commerce between big tech and your internet service provider, which is basically how big big tech works. It works by selling your, getting your data, selling your data, serving your data, and basically spying on you for their own purposes. And the best way to make that stop is to use ExpressVPN, a very simple app. You want you, uh, you know, one click, you download it, one click, and your, your, uh, your internet, your address, your IP address is hidden, uh, which means your activity is far more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. Uh, it anonymizes your online presence. It encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers. And again, it's just so easy. One click and you're protected. So it's finally time to say no to censorship because, of course, the other thing they're doing is deplatforming people based on what they like to read and look at and see. So if you use ExpressVPN, you prevent them from doing that to you. Take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. Can I, can I just add one, one yes. thing about CPAC and the sort of the lack of uh, appeal of the anti-Biden message, which is that that could be problematic for the Republicans in the midterm elections, because a lot of what you see in midterm elections is an angry response to a president that has overreached. We've seen that many times over. We've discussed it here on the podcast many times. But one of the interesting little factoids about CPAC that I thought was revealing is that there were the vendors who show up there and sell all their merchandise. Um, there were some who were selling a lot of anti-Biden merchandise, and that stuff wasn't moving. That product was not selling, which tells you something about what is animating, um, you know, these very active members of the Republican base. So I think that that Biden, you know, there Biden is, you know, was as we've said, run run a very good anti-woke kind of campaign. And, and it's very difficult to pin a lot of this stuff on him that actually does need to be pinned on him because it's what his administration is pursuing. Trump's revival of his own cult of personality in a weird way uh, gives Biden a kind of interesting cover in terms of his own actions as, as president. So, Look, I think that's a very important point. And, you know, we're talking about Uh, Biden has, um, somebody said for the first time since the Johnson administration, from the Oval Office, taken a position on the unionization of a specific worksite and workforce, which is an Amazon warehouse. I think in Tennessee, Biden has uh, issued some kind of little video calling for uh, the unionization uh, vote to, to go through. Now, this is striking, uh, not because we understand that we understand that the Democratic Party is a, a party of trade unionists and and unions and is a supporter of unions. But the more you look at this, I mean, I, I keep going back and looking at this data about how few people in the United States are unionized, particularly in the private sector. I mean, it's, I don't know, 5% of the workforce or something like that. And um, 
the extent to which these, these early months are being governed by uh, union issues, uh, the, obviously, I, I don't want to do another 10 minutes on the schools because we could do a, an hour on the schools. We, we're, we're obsessed with it. But uh, public sector unions, the schools, and now should these workers at this Amazon, you know, mega center or whatever, should they, should they unionize? Um, I'm a little at a loss about this. Uh, Democratic Party got 81 million, Biden got 81 million votes, right? He, uh, the Democratic Party is larger than the Republican Party. It's got a larger, uh, not only got a larger voting block, but it's got a larger base. The Republicans have a larger geographic base because they dominate, you know, uh, lightly uh, populated sta- states. But uh, Democrats have a have a larger base. There are more of them, and they they vote more. And so, the these rel- relatively small parts of their coalition shouldn't be as uh, dominant uh, as they are, unless unless this is like a, akin tantamount to a religion. Like you do it because it's the right thing to do, and you really believe it. And that you know you have to. Amazon has to be unionized or whatever. Um, and this is where I wonder, you know, where the where the rubber meets the road over time uh, with them, which is that they 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 are doing a lot of constituent service at the national level, which is I think what the coronavirus relief bill is. It's a lot of constituent service, top down constituent service. Constituent service is famously a local and state thing usually, or that was what earmarks were for for for, for you know from members of the house. Um, and um, it seems a kind of uh, weird thing to do when um, you what you want to do is cast a national shadow. Am I crazy? Because on the one hand, I'm saying this, and on the other hand, of course, union uh, there are a lot of unionized jobs in the uh, oil and gas industry, and they're going at the oil and gas industry hammer and tongs to serve a different constituency, right? Which is the environmentalist constituency. Okay, so I didn't really I don't really have a developed theory here. I'm just uh spitballing. Noah, you have anything to Not really. I mean I'm just reminded of the early twenty tens when we had these um <clears throat> big national debates over car- card check. Remember card check? Oh yeah. This um the process by which uh, votes over unionization and in individual shops are open or closed ballot. And obviously um, opponents of unionization prefer a closed ballot because when left to their own devices uh, over the last decade, it had been demonstrated that employees at these shops overall preferred not to unionize. But when they were held accountable for their vote and consequences were established, if they were to uh, object to unionization, suddenly unionization became quite popular. Um, so we, um, and I, the, the bad odor in which that was over the course of the 2020s culminating in, um, the decision in Janus, I believe, yeah, uh, Supreme which, court case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, contributed to the collapse of unionization across the country and right to work laws, um, which led to the exodus of the automotive manufacturing industry from the upper Midwest into the industrializing South, for example, all that stuff contributed to the collapse of the the good union job that Democrats really like. And, you know, they can put all the social pressure they want on these institutions. And to the extent that it manifests in political pressure and actual consequences, then it could have an effect. But if it's just barking from the, from the podium, 
I don't suspect it's going to reverse these trends because they were organic to begin with. Right. Well, that, what you're describing is actually a trend over over 30 years. The move right. of the uh, sure. automotive jobs uh, to the south this came to a head after the collapse of the mortgage market and right. the stimulus and the Obama right. administration doing right. all his kids to reverse yeah. this trend. But, right, when but, was, but imagine but Saturn based itself in Tennessee in the 80s because Tennessee was a right to work law, a right to work state rather than a rather than a, a okay, union but ima- state. But imagine what a, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's position on an Amazon uh, uh, factory opening in her district would have been had Amazon union, if most of those workers were unionized, right? Does that shift at all? The battle? I mean, there is a certainly the constituent service, but there's always a way, there's also a way in which you might be outmaneuvering the kind of social democratic flank here. And that if he comes out in favor of unionizing against Amazon, they, that argument against these big corporations loses a little bit of its sting. I mean, some, he you need, know. but he need he needs not come out for or against. That's that's when I say it's constituent right. service. Like no one expects the president of the United States to take a position on whether or not an individual company or an individual location of a co- whatever uh, be uh, be be unionized. Like that's that's odd. Like it's too small bore for a president to involve himself in. And it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, the whole point is that it was an, it's an interesting development that he should do this uh, because generally speaking, it's too, you know, the president is dealing with 50 States and a, and a $22 trillion economy and, you know, the gigantic job, but not about this one uh, thing. So it's all, it's purely symbolic. And then the question again is like, why? And I don't really entirely understand why, except deep conviction. And if that's the case, then what Noah is saying, uh, once again, we have a kind of reignition of some of the issues in the 1960s and 1970s. We've talked a little about crime in this regard, uh, but uh, the Democrats uh, union or bust a strategy in theory had a lot to do with the Southern strategy. People forget this. People think that all that was just about race and everything like that. But um, but the depredations of unions were a very big part of things that that drove people in away from the Democratic Party, being oppressed by the by the union atmosphere that made it impossible for them often to rise in their uh, workplaces because the because the rules the seniority rules and things militated against their uh, making progress um, as workers in a in a working class job. Now, finally, let's talk about food. I want to talk to you about dinner time. At my house, dinner time is chaotic. Uh, I got three kids, one doesn't eat anything, one's a vegetarian, one's got allergies, we keep kosher. Let me tell you, it's not easy to come up with dinner. So I want to help you come up with an easier dinner with Freshly, whose chefs take care of your meals a few nights a week and take the pressure off you. If you're stressed, you're tired, you just don't feel like cooking, food that's fast doesn't have to be fast food. Freshly offers quality meals without the hard work of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. With chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door, no cooking required. So with Freshly, you don't have to go grocery shopping. You don't have to cook. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week so you can keep your fridge stocked and skip the trip to the store. Ordering is easy. Visit Freshly.com and choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like steak, peppercorn, sausage, baked penny, or their chicken pesto bowl. 
and it can fit your lifestyle with a variety of plans and meals to pick from that work for your dietary needs, preferences, tastes, and family size. And now our listeners can try Freshly for just $6.16 per meal. Stop searching the internet for healthy food near me every night and start living Freshly, your meals are always delivered fresh, never frozen, and are ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. With new meals added each week, Freshly brings the convenience of chef-made nutritionist designed classics right to your kitchen. And right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash commentary. Stop stressing about dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash commentary for 40 bucks off your first two orders. That's Freshly.com slash commentary for 40 bucks off your first two orders. So, um... We gotta go, uh, Abe. Uh, I'm I'm gonna put you on the spot here because you are our our resident uh, uh, watcher of stuff. Um, you watch a lot more stuff than I do. Uh, you watching anything that we can maybe tell the people they 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 might might enjoy? You you have no idea how much you put me on the spot because I I literally watched nothing this weekend. I didn't watch okay, a single you watch... movie or show. Okay, uh huh. I did a lot of really. Movies. Well, what about last week? Okay, I kind of forgot everything as why I watched. I forget okay. everything I, I see. I, I watched Wandavision. You guys were right. I, it took several episodes, but I'm I, I'm into it now. I, okay. I like it. So okay. that was a All good right. recommendation. Generally speaking, I am not a believer in the. It takes a couple of episodes to warm up to something. If in my case, if I'm not grabbed in the first fifteen seconds, I'm I'm mostly done. I am struck by the fact that Golden Globes last night awarded. This movie, Nomadland, with uh, Frances McDormand, it won the Golden Globe for Best Drama. This is a movie about Americans who, you know, have no fixed address and they go around, they drive, they live in trucks and they drive around, they live in kind of uh, whatever. And um, uh, uh, I hear it's really good and Frances McDormand is a great actress and I haven't seen it and I have absolutely no desire to see it. And if it ends up winning the Oscar, it will be, this will make, compared to this, Moonlight which won the Oscar and made, I think, $4 million at the box office, will be like Titanic compared... Now, granted, there is no box office and there's nothing, but, uh, I mean, if you watch the trailer to this thing, it is not... Deadly, uh, deadly. Deadly. But I feel like like it's the the kind of cynical uh, movie response to the, the, you know, years-long saccharine van life Instagram stuff we've had crammed down our throat of, like, you know, these cute couples driving off in their cute little van and then, you know, opening the back doors onto a beach. Like, that's not real life. So it's... As a response to that, I'm kind of excited to see it, but... See, once again, I am stunned by you because... Because all you do is talk about how terrible social media is, and you know more about social media than anybody. Know thy enemy, man. That's, that's my philosophy. <laughs> I didn't know that there were people going around. You don't know about bad life, or you're no. going down a rabbit hole today. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going anywhere. Okay, Abe, I apologize for putting you on the spot. I no shouldn't worries. have done that. I just wanted to do a little talking after our fourth ad. Four ads today. We're, you know, so uh, we, we don't want to just end on the ad, and uh, I couldn't think of anything else to say. So, my apologies to Abe. Remember, merch.commentarymagazine.com for your t shirt, sweatshirt, and tote bag needs. Uh, and uh, we're there, we're selling, uh, we're, we're, we're shipping, uh, you're buying. Thank you very much. There may be more products coming down the pipeline. And for Abe, Christine, and Noah, see you tomorrow. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.